Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. There were three ravens sat on a tree. Down a down, hey down a down. Were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take with a down, dairy, 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 down, down? Hello and welcome back to Three Ravens Haunting Season, a month-long celebration of ooks, spooks, the season of the witch, and all things chilling and weird. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a writer, storyteller, and English romanticism obsessive, and I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts. Eleanor Conlon. Well, hello, everyone. <laughs> and we should start the episode in our customary way, saying a gloweringly gothic welcome to our new supporters on Patreon. Welcome to the Raven's Nest, Suniva and Kiki. All hail Suniva, Dark Lord of Patreon. All hail Kiki, Dark Lord of Patreon. As always, if you would like to support the podcast, then please do consider signing up to our Patreon for bonus goodies and extra content, including all of our episodes early and ad-free, our stories as text versions, our monthly newsletter, and our monthly exclusive episodes, like this week's Three Ravens Film Club episode, all about the 2015 folk horror movie, The Witch. Black Philip offered me a pretty dress and some butter, oh, really? which I considered very generous and i took him up on it lucky you good old black philip as ever membership of the patreon is just three dollars a month or six dollars a month that's us dollars by the way we had someone ask which kind of dollars are you talking about i'm from new zealand this is confusing i've never thought about that (laughs) i think it is us dollars yeah so it's the equivalent of two pounds fifty in english money or five pounds a month what is it in new zealand dollars i have no idea (laughs) i'm not an exchange rate mechanism ah anyway you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast Please also send us photos of your carved pumpkins for this year. You'll have seen our pumpkins on our social media carved over the weekend. And if you email yours through to threeravenspodcast at gmail.com, we'll share them on our social media, tag them hashtag threeravenshauntingseason, 
Then at the end of the month, we'll pick our favourite three and send the winners a limited edition Three Ravens Haunting Season mug. Speaking of which, there's new Haunting Season merchandise on the shop at threeravenspodcast.com forward slash shop. Now, sorry it has taken a while to get it up there, but Ollie wanted to make some finishing touches and has been a very busy chap of late. Anyway, the new items are up there for your perusal and purchase, so do please swing by and take a look. We have been unable to resist our ravens in their ghost costumes so we really hope you like the new bits and bobs too now as you'll likely know if you've been listening to our haunting season episodes they're a bit different to our usual episode format and they consist of two new original ghost stories each week one from me and one from martin and we'll determine the order by a coin toss well then eleanor what are you going to call this week heads or tails i am going to call a lashing forked of a demon. Okay, great. Well, uh, just so everyone knows, the coin that we are using from my collection this week is a 1984 Australian $1. It's got kangaroos on it. Look. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, isn't it great? Very nice coin. All right, here we go. What have we got? Heads it is. So that means I'm going first with my story, The Audience, which will be followed by Eleanor's most excellent story, the coal hole. As ever, we'll be back at the end to have a chat about the stories and to share the correspondence we've received this week, so do please stick around. And I'll start spinning my yarn right after this. Perhaps writing it down will oust her from my mind. People say this sort of thing helps getting it down on paper externalizing it but i have my reservations after all i could never show this to anyone most of them think i'm mad already or if not mad then a fool yet whenever i close my eyes the images roar back faces watching cruel half smiles the hum of voices and through them all the longer i look the clearer she becomes the hint of her smile her averted gaze, her disinterested silence, like the eye of calm piercing a storm. It doesn't matter where I am either, stood in the kitchen or lying in bed or trying to keep up my end of a conversation. I simply blink and there she is. I turn and catch something out of the corner of my eye and think it's her. Then my cheeks burn with a blush of shame and my guts twist like fistfuls of wet laundry and a wave of embarrassment floods through me, cold as a knife blade left out in the snow. That last time we met was the turning point. Until then, I was like a sailboat with the wind behind me. The late summer sun followed me wherever I went and my days were full of smiles. I could even hear it in his voice when he'd ring, offering me constant assurance. I had his full support, and I basked in it. He told me the work was being done so that I could hit the ground running, carry on where he was leaving off. People forget that for weeks I was ahead, miles and miles ahead, and for good reason. I had the vision people wanted. People still want, I think. Plus, for months, Hugh was being kind. He loved the attention and the girls thought it was all such fun, like a circus where Mummy was the main attraction. I felt like all that awaited me was the coronation. I could never have imagined that that was when things would turn sour. 
A crown is a funny thing, of course, and I've never wanted to wear one. Gather them all up and melt them down, that's what I say. If you have status, you needn't wear a hat to show it, or have dozens of hats locked behind glass cases. Oh, it's no secret that I've long despised the whole institution. The clips are out there, everyone's seen. But growing up as I did, with as little as I had, you'd despise the whole institution too. Then again, if you've never been truly hungry, so hungry you feared there being no money for food, it might be hard to imagine nursing that rage. The ache of it, keeping you up at night like a ghostly child in your empty belly. In long hours such as those when I was still a girl, it burned me up to know that there were people in this world born into lives where they would never, ever know hunger, never comprehend what it was like to want things you might only dream of having. When you think about it that way, it's natural that I wanted to bring them down, to show them life in the dirt, demonstrate what the world looks like when you have no choice but to fight, tooth and nail, and lie and cheat and hustle and charm, and through all that mess of effort, eventually come to know that you have truly earned whatever it is you have. In my mind, it would be a gift for them to understand that struggle and I so keenly wanted to give them that gift. Give it to her in particular. Perhaps she knew that. Perhaps she could sense it somehow. And maybe that's why what happened did. After all, mine was a gift she would never accept. Why would she, when all she'd ever known was a life of plenty? And I didn't want what she gave to me. Still don't. But that's true power, I suppose. Anyway, by the time I'd actually met her, I didn't feel the same burning rage I'd harboured in my youth. In fact, I felt flustered when we finally shook hands. I even told her how my parents had named me Mary, yet for all my life, everyone had called me by my middle name, after her. She nodded at that, uncaring, as if what I'd said was something she'd already forgotten. No doubt she'd heard the same sort of thing hundreds if not thousands of times across her long life. And back then, honestly, I didn't care what she thought. I was riding high in the middle of things with Mark, madly in love. It's easy to feel happy when you're on top, to be blind to things. When doors open for you as you approach and nameless people flit in and out of your orbit, fetching, carrying, seeing to your needs... Of course, the scales eventually fall. Hugh found out about Mark and nearly left me, and I stumbled and felt shame because everybody knew. All the while, she got it right, skated through scandal like an Olympian. She understood better than anyone. High walls to keep the mob away. No statements. Photographers only coming by when summoned. More than anything, she kept herself insulated behind a human barrier of soldiers and security guards and servants. So much blood to get through, to reach her. Yet I could never get comfortable in a life like that. After all, those people around her must have known. 
Maybe they even said as much to one another. If we all just agreed to stay home for a single day, instead of coming to work, those walls would be scaled. Hungry eyes and mouths and hands and teeth would climb through windows and slink down corridors, and all the decorum would count for nothing at all. Anyway, that never happened. The last time we met, all her bodies were in their position, doing their various duties. Honestly, I don't recall everything I saw that day and actually remember very little. You'd think, because it was important, that it would be etched in my mind, but really the day felt written in sand even before it had happened around me. After all, one set of stairs is as much like any other in that sort of place. Carpets, paintings, sparkling clean window panes, a nodding person here, another there, colonels and retainers and private aides. I do remember that I was dressed in navy and, and that I didn't want to bow to her again. But I did, to my shame. Like I said, it wasn't the first time I'd been in front of her, not the first time I dipped my whole body in ungainly deference, but I'm no fool. As much as I wanted to meet her as an equal, to defy, that's not what people wanted to see. Deference is the aim of the game. They want to see you grovel, see you beg. Of all of them, I think it was she who wanted to see you grovel most of all. Which is maybe where the national appetite came from. Maybe it bled out of her, the dark heart at the centre, which on that very day was slowing to a crawl. Thing is, I'm hardly a tall woman, but people don't realise how truly tiny she was. A diminutive creature, bird-like, with mottled skin, tissue thin. I could kneel at her feet and still be looking her in the eye. Not that I ever would. But maybe, in retrospect, that's what I should have done. Anyway, that day she had a black cane gripped in her left hand, which was unexpected. And what I remember most is the bruises. She had them on the backs of both of her fists, like she'd been struck. She might have been bruised elsewhere, but she was covered more or less from head to toe, save for her face, which was painted thick with makeup. I suppose from a distance she appeared calm, being so still, barely bothering to regard me through her spectacles. But I... Well, honestly, I felt unnerved by her stillness. She looked like she might be dead already, and, and I couldn't stop looking at those wounds, those bruises. God knows how she'd got them, not least as she can't have been up to much across the days beforehand. Still, there she was, dressed in grey in that strangely large mint green room, motionless and frail with her black and blue hands. And everything around us was either mint green, cream marble, or gilded, and the lights were so bright that I didn't notice the cameras clicking. They must have been, of course, everyone seen the photographs, her final engagement, as soon as it became known. Not that I knew it going in. Nobody did. Of course, the handshake was unnerving enough, electric somehow, though we barely touched. 
She smiled, too, when we touched, as if she knew what was happening while I didn't. Although her smile was not at me, but in general, to the air beside me. And I thought she would be warm to the touch like she had been when we'd met before, but she wasn't. She was cold, like a thing instead of a person. Besides, that part was just for show, the illusion of warmth. The important bit took place behind closed doors, and that was when the chill truly set in. They call it the kissing of hands. I didn't think it meant what it sounded like, but it really did. They led me off through a door beyond an arrangement of pink roses into a darkened room lit only by side lamps. The curtains were drawn, and I found myself blinded by the gloom, blinking to see where she was. It was as if she had disappeared somehow into the darkness. And I realized that whoever had closed the door had done so from the outside, meaning we were suddenly alone, just the two of us. Like I said, at first... It was like she'd disappeared. I couldn't understand how she'd moved so fast. Still, eventually, after craning my neck around curtains and looking round a bed that must have been ornamental, I noticed her in a far corner, sat in a high-backed chair. She was out of breath, sighing, an audible rattle in her chest. I don't know if we exchanged a word, and if we did, then I can't recall it. Yet I do remember, can't forget, that she held her knuckles out, not looking at me, and a silence opened up between us like a chasm. It was like a silent scream, blocking out all other noise save the blood in my ears. And I remember, she flicked her grey eyes in my direction, looking from me to her own trembling hand, as if she were either bored or exhausted or both. So, I did what I had to do. I approached her, half stumbling, and leaned down and touched my lips to the black-blue bruise on the back of her hand. She smelled of soap, sickly sweet, I swear that I felt it right then, creeping from her into me, the indifferent stillness of death. It chilled me to the bone, and I don't think I've ever been warm since. The next thing I remember, I was in the car to the airport, and as I mentioned, if we did speak, I don't remember what was said. I felt so light-headed, almost like I was outside of my own body, floating back through time to my childhood. That feeling of dislocation, of separation, it still creeps up on me even now. I find myself sat or stood somewhere that I don't remember having travelled to, that same smell of soap in my nose. But immediately after that meeting, it was at its worst. The hours afterwards were a blur of watching faces and photographers and people speaking around and to me, but I wasn't really there. I'm sure I replied to whatever was said to me, but I couldn't tell you the words I used. I just remember the weather worsening, the storm clouds gathering, and the sky turning the same blue-black shade as her skin.
It must have been a trick of the rain, but as we journeyed, I started to see her in reflections. I think, strangely, the first time might have been on the plane as we flew south. I was looking out of the window at the wind and the glowering clouds, and I caught a glimpse of her over my shoulder. It can't have been her, but it startled me, seeing that face outlined beside my own, like she was stood in the cabin, watching, staring out at the same storm. I think I turned, startled and unnerved, my heart skipping a beat, but of course there was nobody there. Then again, maybe that never happened and my mind made it up later on. These days, it's difficult to know. A similar thing happened after we'd landed. I was trying to focus on the speech, knowing it was a big moment. I was in one car, Hugh and the girls were in another. It was going to be my last chance to talk to the nation, to make an impression, yet I wasn't really there. I wanted to feel a sense of urgency or panic, but I couldn't summon it up. I was simply quiet, or I think I was. I recalled the world moving around me, the rain falling, and I could tell that everyone knew something was off with me. I could hear them muttering, and he called me, of course, offering encouragement. I remember his jovial voice, same as always, half-attentive, chattering away, turning on a syllable from ridiculous to grave. And there I was, holding the phone in my hand, not so much speaking to him as being spoken to, feeling the car slide on through rainy London streets. Then I swear that I saw her on a street corner, her back facing away. She was dressed in a grey-green cagoule, wearing the same shoes she always wore, black patent leather with small brass clasps. And the car passed by, and she seemed to turn, half-looking, not raising her head, the hint of a smile on her cheek. Her disinterest in me was palpable. That was one of the strangest aspects of everything that happened across the weeks that followed. Every time I saw her, she wouldn't meet my eye, though she was always observing, always present, even if she was barely even there. Seeing her out of the car window like that, shrouded in rain, made my mouth go so dry I couldn't speak. But he didn't notice, or if he did, then he didn't mind. He prattled on, and eventually, croakily, I thanked him for his kindness, and the call wound up. Then we circled for a long time, driving and waiting for the storm to move off, the tyres sloshing through puddles, over bridges, down streets. Droplets pinged off the windows and roof of the car. I recall that there were discussions about moving the press conference inside, but I interjected because I wanted my moment. That iconic image, the girl from nowhere, stood outside that black door, flanked by those iron rails, stood by that length of pavement. And though it did take a while, the clouds parted, and I found myself stood there, exactly where I'd always wanted to be. Only, she was there too. It was like 
something out of a dream, in all honesty. I was only half aware of what was happening, or even somehow of where I was, like I'd stepped into a photograph of myself. I had the speech in a black leather folder, and I remember I walked to the podium, the crowd thickly clustered to my left-hand side, but as I set the words down in front of me, I saw her face, out in the mass of soaking wet bodies. That time she was wearing a headscarf. It was green, I think, matching her olive coat. And unlike the rest of them, unlike what felt like a world of eyes trained in my direction, she still wasn't watching me. She was looking away, off to one side, and the cameras were flashing and journalists were writing, yet she couldn't have cared less. I did my best to not look directly at her. I raised my eyeline above the crowd, smiled, looked left and right, and said the words on the page before me. Yet the more I looked away, the more I saw her out there, a minute, green, uncaring figure in a wall of eager faces. It was as if she was growing invisibly inside my mind, even though she was so small. That tiny, bird-like person looming larger and larger despite the voice in my head saying she couldn't have been there at all. Once the speech was done, I turned and realised that across the course of the day I'd barely seen Hugh, yet suddenly there he was. I remember he was smiling, and so was I, and I approached him unsteadily. Right away, he could tell something was wrong, and if you watch the footage back, you can see it on my face. I'm smiling, but it's a fake smile, a horrified, desperate smile. Of course, that's because I'm trying, with every ounce of energy, to not look at her standing opposite. Yet there she was, from the moment I arrived to the moment we went inside. After that, once that big black door was closed, Hugh led me to one side and wanted to offer me congratulations. But I wasn't quite like myself. His smile dropped in that same way I'd seen it wither a hundred times before. He was disappointed in me. But I didn't want to tell him what was really going on, not in that moment, so I brushed him off, turned my mind to business as best I could. After all, none of it made sense. Not until the news finally came that she was dead. We had meant to speak online that afternoon, but from the moment I woke up in the morning, I was being told that she was ill, then reminded about it over and over. Then, when the final update came, it was hardly a surprise. After all, I kept imagining how much more of her body must have been blue-black under her clothes, and I wondered if maybe she was really just one dark bruise from head to toe. More surprising was that I held things together at all, because every time I looked through a window or into a mirror or round a corner, I expected to see her there. Sometimes I thought I did. And of course, in the days that followed, you couldn't turn on a television, or open the internet, or walk down a corridor without sight or sound of her. She was 
everywhere, real or imagined, watching me on all sides, yet never looking directly at me. Except once, when I made the speech announcing her death. Of course, she had to be there for that one. And that time, instead of me looking away, I stared right at her. I was dressed in black, as were the press, but she was wearing yellow, a coat and hat, striking the same silhouette as always, and again she was bored of my voice, which, as I spoke, bored me more and more the longer I kept speaking. Still, seeing her there, feelings of rage and hate rose up within me, and I looked right at her and we locked eyes. She stared at me. And I stared at her, and I felt my skin crawling like I was riddled with ants. And then it was over. The speech, I mean, not her visitations. If anything, staring at her that way seemed to make things escalate. Compared to what happened later, that speech was easy. Much harder were the quiet moments, those rare times when I was alone and I felt her there but didn't know if she would appear so much as to be seen. For instance, one night we were lying in bed, Hugh and I, side by side. He's a deep sleeper, unlike me, and I was still settling in. After all, that place, it wasn't my house, not really and it wasn't my bed. Hugh didn't mind, and the girls loved it. Besides, Hugh's the kind of person who can sleep anywhere, a man who's not disturbed by challenges or sadness. But me? Well, either way, I just couldn't nod off. So I was dozing there, my eyes half-closed, and the room became cold, deathly cold. And that smell rose up, light at first, just a hint of it. And I saw her there, sat in the corner of the room, through a chink in my eyelids. It was only a glimpse, in shadow, and I thought at first it was only my clothes, slung over the back of a chair. But it had to be her, because of the smell. That sickly stink. And again, she wasn't looking at me, but turned partly away, holding out her hand as if awaiting another kiss. I remained still for a long time, eventually summoning the strength to reach to the bedside lamp and switch it on. Once I did, she disappeared, and Hugh woke up and asked me what all the fuss was about. He reached out to touch me, and I remember he told me I was freezing cold. That was when I finally told him I was seeing her, that she was haunting me, and he laughed in my face and went back to sleep. People sometimes wonder why I had the affair. After all, Hugh's handsome and rich and talented and Mark, well, Mark was just there. And that night, when he laughed it off, that kind of thing is why I did it. Nothing ever seems to really bother Hugh, and everything's a joke to him, me especially. Only for me, she wasn't a joke at all.
and the longer it went on, the less funny everything became. Yet Hugh, he kept telling people about it like it was one big ruse, a self-fulfilling prophecy. The national mourning period should have been a godsend, but of course I couldn't focus. I don't believe in curses, never have, but if such things do exist, then maybe that's what happened. Either way, night after night, I feared she'd come, yet somehow she never did. And the crowds snaked round to see her, miles and miles of faces, all of them watching her. And if not watching her, then looking for me. So many eyes. And some of what happened in those days. It wasn't terrifying per se, it was all just unsettling. I would place things down and find them moved. Pens or mugs or my toothbrush. Other times I would walk into a room and feel someone in there only to find it empty. Besides that building, it's iconic, enormous, and it wasn't my house. It was always full of people walking down stairs and across landings, creaking, whispering, talking to each other, just a room or two away. In the dead of night, I would hear footsteps padding down halls and over carpets and never really know who or what was making those noises. Most likely it was people with perfectly good reasons to be wherever they were, but when those footsteps were in the flat on the other side of the bedroom door, the explanation I leapt to was the obvious. It was her. The other thing to note is that I hate cats, despise them, and the cat in that house seemed to dislike me in just the same way. I would walk into a room and it would walk out, hissing sometimes like it knew things I didn't. If it was up to me, I would have wrung its neck, but when I suggested as much, the room went quiet and I wished I'd never mentioned it. Of course, he kept calling. Day after day he would telephone, this day from that country, a different country the next. He would ring me between meetings where I'd sit, limply, not really hearing what was being said and nodding along as best I could. He joked that he was like Banquo, which I would have found funny, were it not for the obvious circumstance. Still, I didn't mention what was happening to him, or to anybody. It wasn't until her funeral, when Hugh told Kwasi what was going on, and Kwasi found the whole thing hilarious, so much so he couldn't stop laughing, and they reported it on TV. It is genuinely blackly funny, of course, how a crisis teaches you who your real friends are. I never could have guessed how quickly my nearest and dearest would abandon me. In the days and weeks afterwards, I remember never having felt so alone, as if she was the only one who was truly with me, getting closer and closer while everyone else drifted further away. Naturally, after the funeral, things escalated. The more I looked for her, the more she was there to see. Only 
day after day she looked less and less recognizable, less and less herself. Her clothes, for example. The first time I went and sat with her son, she stood behind me, by my shoulder, barely visible. He told me how he had dreaded her dying. I smiled at that, understanding for myself what dread truly meant, feeling her there, radiating emptiness. I think he has no real idea what dread feels like. Still, as she stood there, watching him, listening in, I saw out of the corner of my eyes that whatever she had been wearing was faded away. It was as if the threads on her skin were rotting, revealing more of the blue-black darkness within. Then, on the second time we met together, her clothes had disappeared, and the sweet smell had grown stronger, so much so that it made my eyes water and my nostrils flare. Back again, he had said. Dear, oh dear. And he looked so sad. I don't know if he was talking about me being back or about her. Perhaps he knew somehow that she was following me everywhere I went, like a sweet-smelling shadow. But I felt, in a strange way, that he did somehow understand. She started to come at night again, too. Not that I could sleep. The markets were crashing, enemies were muttering, the eyes of the world watching me unravel. He had suddenly stopped calling altogether. Still, as I lay in bed with Hugh beside me, I would smell her there and open my eyes from time to time, and sometimes she would let me see her and sometimes she would not. Most nights, she would be sat in the chair, sometimes stood facing away from me, her blue-black body like a solid patch of shadow. And then there was the night when I saw her at the bottom of the bed, nakedly black, the edges of her shifting like she was underwater. It wasn't the whole of her I could see, to be clear. Just the top of her face, dark as night, leaning around the corner of the bed. She wasn't looking at me, of course, but I saw the glint of her eyes shining like jewels. Then I spied her raise her hand. The movement was awkward, sudden, like she was a machine, or as if her limb was barely attached, yanked upwards by an unseen force. I felt my body go rigid and my heart thundered in my chest and I knew it couldn't really be her. She couldn't have crouched like that to hide at the foot of my bed, not with those old bones couldn't peep out at me. Yet that was what she was doing, just a few feet away. I glanced and felt like whoever she had once been was gone. I knew that her body was in its marble tomb, still surrounded by living, breathing people, guarded, insulated, yet there she was, present, corporeal somehow, not looking at me, but 
aware of me, and that was when she started to shuffle closer. I wanted to scream, of course, but something stopped me. It was probably the smell, which was chokingly harsh, blindingly strong. So I started to cry. And then she hobbled along, as if waddling on her feet, taking tiny steps while crouched down into a tight ball of malice, her blue-black shape wet and glistening in the dark. The whole room felt freezing cold, like every ounce of warmth had drained away, yet all was silence, save for the sound of the skin on her feet as she shuffled padding ever nearer. And all the while, she held her arm aloft, kept her bony blue hand dangling over my rigid body. She moved nearer, and I saw it coming closer, dangling, rising over my knees, my belly, my chest. Then, there it was, hovering in front of my face. Wretched stink of it stoppered my lungs, and frigid tears rolled down my face. I didn't know what else to do, or how else to make her go away, except to give her what she wanted. So I leaned forward, and I pressed my lips into what was left of her skin. It yielded, wet and cold, for only a split second. Then, no sooner than the skin of my lips had touched her, did she vanish, leaving me completely and entirely alone. As you might imagine, time became quite disordered for me during that period. Meetings happened, some with me, some without me all about me, give or take. And I thought after that second kiss that she might leave me alone, but she didn't. Instead, she would appear in the middle of the benches opposite, or stand beside the speaker in the house, or sit on the toy box in the girls' room watching them play. Wherever I went, she was always either waiting for me to arrive or never far behind. I didn't know what else to do. The inevitable happened, and I was invited to a meeting where I was asked to explain myself. Like a deck of cards being cut and dealt, I saw faces disappear, arrive, come and go. People were giving speeches I ought to have taken, completing tasks that should have been mine. Yet every room I went into, my chair was always taken. More often than not, She was sat in it, her bony arm held aloft, always wanting more. In the end, what choice did I have? I gave up, slunk away and went back to my actual house, back to my actual bed with the same smugly smiling hue and the same happy children too young to understand what had happened. The three of them seemed to have snapped back into place, like the whole period was barely even real, but I have been radically altered. 
even now when it rains, or I look into a mirror, or see my face reflected in a spoon on the table in front of me, I expect to see her. When I go into a room, I expect her to be there, waiting. My ears tingle, expecting the hiss of a cat or the baying of a mob. Worst of all, I don't know if the smell of her will ever really leave me. Maybe it's permanently burned into my nostrils or into my brain. Either way, I find myself unable to rid myself of the lingering thought of my namesake, and I fear at every moment that she will return, seeking another audience. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. I didn't like my grandmother's house. It was dark, and the kind of dark which seemed to suck light into itself, pulling it into shadowy corners and extinguishing it. The wallpaper was muted, stained by the smoke of the many cigarettes smoked by my grandmother and my two great-aunts, and the floorboards were stained a blackish green which reminded me of mould. It was in the middle of a terrace of houses on a cobbled street which was also perpetually dark, and because it was the central house it seemed to be the dimmest point, away from the openings at either end of the road. It was nothing like home, where the streets were broader, and behind our house was the park which led down to the woods, scene of many hours of games and adventures with my friends or with my imagination. Because we were on the outskirts of London, you could even find all sorts of treasures from the war in the woods, like old bits of bombshell and bullet casings. I found the button from a German officer's uniform once, but I swapped it for a Desperate Dan comic. I was an active and curious boy, always tearing about exploring or conducting experiments, and that was one of the reasons I resented making the annual pilgrimage to my grandmother's house in Blackbrook. There was nothing to do there, and I discovered, little as I wished to, that having nothing to do meant my mind had long stretches of time to think all sorts of thoughts. My mother was happy enough there, chatting and drinking tea with her mother and aunts, but for a small boy used to rushing around, it was dull. 
or it would have been dull, if the faint feeling that there was something not quite right about their house had allowed me to fully relax. My grandmother and aunts were kind and indulged me completely as the only child in the family, but I half shamefully looked forward to being old enough to go to the grammar school so that I didn't have to accompany my mother on trips to Blackbrook anymore. The best bit of going to stay with them was the train journey up there, miles and miles of it with my nose pressed against the window of the compartment, watching the countryside rush by and great puffs of steam from the engine. My mother knew how much I liked trains, and so never minded me wobbling my way down to ask the driver if I could have a look in the engine. If I was lucky, he'd be kind enough to let me climb in and watch. There wasn't a station near my grandmother's house, so one of my great aunts would come to meet us and we'd get the bus back together. It was inevitably wet. Blackbrook seemed to exist in a pocket of dreary grey cloud which insisted on dumping its contents down no matter the time of year. The rain made the cobbled street outside the house slick and treacherous, and my mother and I both clung onto the handrail as we climbed down the area steps. It was an old Victorian house across five floors, which perhaps makes it sound grand, though it was not. Each floor was narrow, and the rooms pokey, made to seem more so by the dusty, old-fashioned furniture. The front door was never used. We always went downstairs first and into the boot room to take off our coats, then back upstairs. "'Put your ma's things upstairs and yours, there's a good lad, Mick,' said Auntie Barb, guiding my mother away to the back kitchen. "'Oh, Kath, you must be done in that journey. Come and take your things off and have a cuppa.' I was reluctant to go upstairs alone, but it was still daylight at least, and as light as the house would get, so I thought I should make the best of it. They always let me sleep in the attic room, which I had once thought would be a great treat, having my own space up in the eaves like a lighthouse keeper or an archer atop a castle turret. That was before I knew better. There was a long, narrow passage leading from the front door past the front parlour, which was known as the piano room. Auntie Barb taught the piano to a few sulky children in there every week, but otherwise nobody sat there because it was terribly cold. I played the piano in there sometimes. I taught myself to pick out tunes I liked, but I couldn't read music, and I always resisted Auntie Barb's attempts to teach me properly. Next door was the cello room, because Auntie Bridget taught the cello. She had even fewer students than Auntie Barb, but she'd claimed the warmer room because she said the cold made the strings go out of tune. Calling the rooms these makes them seem much more important, but in reality they were very small and dingy like everywhere else in the house. The staircase curled tightly up the centre of the house like a scroll of newspaper to three more floors. There were only two rooms on the first two of these, and then the attic room at the top. Bridget and Barb shared, and when my mother stayed she shared with my grandmother. I was given the attic, as I was the man of the house, they said. But I really would have much rather stayed downstairs. For one thing, I didn't like going up the stairs, because underneath them, tucked into the shadows of the corridor, was a little door leading to a coal hole. Whenever I had peered into it, I'd felt a terrible, 
lost feeling, as if the darkness was reaching out to me and pulling me into itself. I'd become convinced that I was being watched from that small opening by eyes I could not see, because they were as dark as the dusty coal piled in there. I shut my eyes as I went past it, and took the bottom stairs two at a time as if that would somehow keep me from any contact with the coal hole. Once my mother's bag was stowed in the third floor room, I took my time climbing the last flight of stairs to the top of the house and the attic. The door was slightly ajar, and it looked unassuming as it always did at first. There was just a steeply sloping ceiling angled towards the house next door, a small chest of drawers and an iron bedstead covered with an endearingly lumpy quilt Auntie Bridget had patchworked herself when she'd broken her ankle one winter. I went in and put my knapsack down, deliberately looking anywhere but back towards the door. You see, that was where the ottoman was. As I think back, it's difficult to say exactly what was frightening about it, but I knew very definitely that I didn't like it. It was covered in a faded chintz fabric, which might once have been red and green, but it turned to a kind of blood-stained brown. Inside there were a few books and games which I had long since outgrown, but I never opened it because I didn't like the things inside. There was a funny board with letters and numbers and the words yes and no, and there was a children's book with the story of Mozart's opera The Magic Flute. I didn't like the illustration of the boy playing the flute. He had sly, no-good eyes, and I'd always imagined that he might play the flute from within the ottoman, even though I knew logically that he was a drawing and couldn't do anything. I once thought to try and weigh down the lid of the ottoman with my knapsack, but that was no good. I'd tried to do it, but been overtaken by the very strong feeling that the ottoman should touch nothing which belonged to me. Although they were in separate parts of the house entirely, there was something about it which reminded me of the coal hole. Mich, calm down! Your granny's made him a dear a cake, Auntie Bridget called. I didn't need telling twice. I did have fun after that, and I forgot about the ottoman and the coal hole. The range was warm and inviting in the back kitchen, and the aunts got the playing cards out. Soon enough, a bottle of sherry had appeared too, and we were all shouting over a game of Newmarket and betting with round discs which had been parts for old dial phones. Auntie Barb had briefly worked in the supplies department of British Telecom. She'd taken a whole load home when the old phones became outdated. They were bright, cheerful colours, and I liked the feel of them clacking against each other between my fingers. The rain didn't let up the whole time, but it was cosy, playing games in the kitchen and hearing it hammer away at the windows. It was easy to beat my family at cards, especially after they started drinking sherry. Go on, Mick, have a little nip of sherry, said Auntie Bridget. She was my favourite because she had a wild streak and would always sneak me sweets and puffs of her cigarettes. They all smoked woodbines like a group of chimneys. My mother didn't smoke much when we were at home, but when she was with her family, she was just as bad. I don't know if they make woodbines anymore, but if I got a whiff of one now, I know I'd be transported right back to those days. Shouldn't give him that, 
my mother said, but she was laughing. She was much more relaxed up here in Blackbrook than she ever was at home. Her mother and aunts were her best friends, even though they lived so far away. They often asked her to come back and live with them, but she'd never taken them up on it. I was glad, because I don't think I could have lived in that house. The sherry was sticky and heavy on my tongue, and after I'd drunk some, it made the faces of my family blur and slide as they laughed. I can remember images of the evening in little flashes, the shine of a spectacles chain catching the light, a smear of my mother's lipstick above the line of her mouth. The colour she wore was called Tangy Natural, I remember. She wouldn't wear a bright one because she was worried people would think she was fast, so it was very pale and thus unsatisfactory for me to smear on my cheeks as war paint and run about the park howling at the top of my voice. I saw Granny's mouth moving in her reflection in the window pane through a gap in the flowered curtains. Get some more coal for the range, will you, Mick? I knew I had to do it, as I couldn't explain to them my dark fear of the coal hole. Giving it voice would make it real in a way I was not prepared to do. So I went, a bit unsteady on my legs from the sherry. That's it, lad. Take it slow, Auntie Bridget said, dissolving in cackles. I collected the coal bucket from beside the range. It was a nasty, rusty little thing which banged against my leg as I went through the front kitchen back to the corridor. It was all in darkness. I yanked open the door to the coal hole quickly, trying not to look too deeply into it. It was a moor of blackness, the chips in the coal glinting malevolently. I shoveled some into the bucket as fast as I could, wincing as the pile rumbled and the coal rattled. Again, I could not shake the thought that a pair of eyes were watching me from the depths of the coal hole. Slamming the door shut hard as I could, I almost ran back to the warmth of the back kitchen with its sweet smell of sherry and the women's laughter and the rain playing scales and arpeggios all over the window. We paid cards for a bit longer, until my mother seemed to remember that I was there and told me to go off to bed. I made a bit of a fuss, but they all shooed me with plenty of kisses and clucking, and when I was in the front kitchen, Auntie Barbara shut the door firmly behind me. I glued my ear to it for a moment and heard her say, All right, Kathy. You can tell us all about it now Mick's gone to bed. How's he been? said Bridget, sounding more serious than she usually did. He's been all right, my mother said. You know, he's fussy. Knows what he likes and doesn't like and isn't afraid to tell you. Oh, I know, my love. I stepped back from the door, feeling self-conscious. I knew the conversation wasn't for me, but... I didn't see what was so wrong with being sure about what you did and didn't like. Very reluctantly, I felt my way along the wall of the corridor to the stairs, feeling the texture of the wallpaper under my fingers. I kept my gaze averted from the coal hole, until something made me turn my head. I almost bolted straight to the back kitchen. The door to the coal hole was standing slightly ajar. Come on, don't be a baby, I said to myself, and called myself a few other names as well that I'd learned from a comic. 
was so sure that I'd closed the door to the coal hole. I couldn't understand how it could be open now. Just to be sure, I closed it again with a slam and gave it a kick for good measure as nobody was watching. Then I fled upstairs. The bathroom was on the floor below my attic bedroom and there was a mirrored cabinet above the sink which I didn't like and made a point of never looking at. I always cleaned my teeth as quickly as I could, bending over the sink so I wouldn't have to catch sight of the glass. I'd wet my toothbrush and was scrubbing it hard into the tin of Gibbs' dentifrice to make it bubble when I heard a sound behind me. Although the bathroom door was closed, it was unmistakably a creak on the stairs. I thought one of my aunts might have come upstairs for cigarettes as I knew they smoked in bed, but nobody called out and the stairs stayed silent. I took my time over cleaning my teeth, not really wanting to go upstairs to the attic room and the ottoman. I soaked my hands and cleaned some interesting grey stuff out of my nose. But I knew that I would eventually have to go up there. I couldn't exactly spend the night in the bathroom and I knew that I shouldn't worry my mother. I didn't want to add to whatever it was she was talking about downstairs, so I made myself go up. The attic room was totally dark, of course. I ran across the room and launched myself at the bed, feeling for the cord of the electric lamp, which I turned on straight away. I tucked myself fully into bed before daring to turn around and check that the ottoman was in its place and doing nothing extra sinister. It was sitting by the door, fraying unpleasantly. It didn't smell, but looking at it always made me feel as though it might. When I was satisfied that it was in its place, I turned off the lamp and settled into bed. I usually liked the sound of rain. At home, I always opened the bedroom window a crack when it was raining, although my mother didn't approve of letting the heat out, but I liked to listen to it. Here, I found myself wishing it would stop so I could hear properly. Up in the attic, it drummed so loudly on the roof that it prevented me from listening to the sounds of the house. Although I was too high up to pick out the threads of my family's voices, I would have been able to hear if anything was amiss. Any more strange creaks or, worst of all, the sound of a thin, flat little flute being played deep in the depths of the ottoman. The rain didn't let up, and I had to really strain to hear. It should have been a relief to finally hear the sound of somebody coming up the stairs, but it wasn't. It's Mum, I told myself silently. Come up to say goodnight. But the steps were so slow, almost hesitant, that I started to think that I'd imagine them after all through the sound of the raindrops. I must have made myself drowsy with listening so hard that I think I did start to drop off. But then I heard through the pattering rain the certain slow sound of a creaking floorboard in my room. It was always cold up there. I remember that there was ice under the bed one January morning when we'd come to Blackbrook for Christmas, but it felt colder than ever at that moment. It was a long languid creak, as though somebody was very deliberately stepping on the creaking board just in front of the ottoman loud enough to disturb me. 
What is it about the dark that can completely convince you that there's someone in the room with you, even when that can't possibly be the case? Nevertheless, I was so vividly positive that there was somebody there that I reached out for the cord of the lamp and turned it on. There was nothing in the room with me at all. I'm sure of it to this day. I even gave the ottoman a good look, but it was in its place. It almost seemed to have an air of innocence about it, as if to ask me how I could possibly suspect it. I turned the lamp off again and lay listening to the rain trickling into the gutters. It was only a little while after that I was suddenly horribly sure that there was something moving near the door, close to the ottoman. I switched on the lamp, my heart thudding. There was nothing there. Except, there was something. At the very edge of the ottoman, there was something which had not been there before. Something dark, smeared against the old rust of the chintz. I inched down towards the end of the bed to get a closer look. They were little black smudges, in a line, in the shape of finger ends. It was as though somebody with their hands covered in coal dust had dug their fingers into the ottoman's faded cushioning and lifted up the lid. One thing gripped my mind. If somebody with coal-dusted fingers had come into the room and lifted the lid of the ottoman all in the darkness, where were they now? My hands were shaking, and not just from the fierce cold which seemed to have taken over the room. I pulled the covers right up over my mouth and nose, leaving only my eyes and the top of my head visible. I would leave the lamp on. While there was light, nothing would happen. I was certain of it. My grandmother would be angry if she found out I'd slept with the lamp on, because she was still deeply distrustful of electricity and thought it should be used as sparingly as possible. But there was no hope of sleeping safely with the light off if whatever it was would only move about in the dark. I fixed my gaze on the ottoman and the telltale black smudges. It was as though the thing was smirking at me, if you can imagine a piece of furniture smirking. It seemed to exude a sense of superiority, as though it had bested me somehow. I must have fallen asleep for a while, because when I jolted awake it was dark in the room again. The darkness had an oily quality to it, which made the atmosphere feel heavy. Terror crept through me like a drip of ice water running down my collar. I'd left the light on. How was it off? Perhaps one of my family had seen the light at the top of the stairs while coming to bed and stepped in to turn it off. After all, they could not have known about the thing. The thing I knew in the deepest fibres of my being must have come from the coal hole. The thing... That was now in the dark with me. I waited, breathing into the rainy night as quietly as I could, hoping beyond hope that it might not realise I was awake as I slowly 
slowly moved my hand towards the cord of the lamp. The cotton of the bedsheet made an obscenely loud rasping sound as my fingers accidentally brushed against it. I froze. Then I heard a tiny exhaling sound, as though something which had been sealed up was now open. Although it was as black as tar in the attic, I could well guess what the sound was. It was the lid of the ottoman opening. Believe me when I say I couldn't move. I was rigid with terror, and even if I had been able to move, where would I have gone? How could I run when the ottoman and whatever was beginning to climb out of it stood between me and the door? Instead, I had to lie there, shivering, eyes squeezed shut as the squeak of the brass hinges opening fully came to its conclusion and was followed by the leisurely, dragging noise of something pulling itself out of the ottoman. Then there was a step, surprisingly light, on the attic floor. Then another. I wanted to cry out or be sick with dread as it came closer and closer to the bed. I heard a tink, tink, tink sound as though fingers had been softly drummed on the metal of the bedstead. Then, to my complete horror, I felt the end of the bed go down, as though somebody had sat down. I knew what that felt like because it was how my mother used to sit when I'd been young enough for bedtime stories. I distinctly felt the indent, the weight of somebody sitting down. And something that was certainly a hand gripped my ankle through the layers of sheets. I snatched my leg away, a scream dying in my throat, and grabbed wildly for the lamp cord. I turned on the light. There was nothing there. Nothing. Nothing except for a dark imprint of black dust like coal on the bed, as though somebody completely coated in it had sat down and left a hollow reminder of themselves behind. I kept my hand clutched around the cord of the lamp then, and it stayed on, although I didn't sleep. I stayed awake, wide-eyed with sleepless terror until the rain died away and the sky lightened, washed bright after all the rain. Some hours later, my mother came up the attic stairs and told me we would go out for a walk into Blackbrook while my aunts were teaching piano and cello. I had to say something to her. Auntie Bob wants us to move up here, I said, all in a rush. We won't, will we? I don't think so, my mother said, moving distractedly around the room and picking up my discarded jumper. I've got my job and you're on the list to take the grammar school exams. Besides, she said, coming over to sweep my hair out of my face, there's something funny about this old house, don't you think? I flung my arms around her suddenly, which I think surprised her. Oh, Mick! You should be more careful to wash your hands, she exclaimed when we eventually unclasped. Look, you've left coal dust everywhere from when you helped your aunties last night. It's all over the sheets. 
my goodness, Eleanor, what are you trying to do to me? Scare you, hopefully. But Martin, Martin. (laughs) Yeah? Did you just tell us all a story about Liz Truss? (laughs) Yeah, I did. (laughs) I mean, wow. What made you choose such an unlikely protagonist? Well, you know how last week I was talking about things that scare me, what actually, actually scares me? Yeah. Well, Liz Truss is quite a terrifying figure in our recent political history. Well, she's certainly done some terrifying things to the the UK economy. Yeah, she certainly has. What made you choose her as, as the person being haunted, though? Well, it was such a coincidence that this woman called Liz became Prime Minister at the same time as this other very famous person called Liz died. And the monarchy also, as we've probably expressed across quite a few episodes of the Three Ravens podcast, is something that you and I have uncomfortable feelings about a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're really interested in history. And in this country, the hereditary monarchy has always been part of that yes i think it's something that's worth exploring and talking about but wow what an imaginative haunting it's interesting (laughs) because normally in ghost stories we feel some sympathy for the protagonist and we're scared of the ghost but you've really flipped the trope on its head because (laughs) i think very few people have a lot of sympathy for the former prime minister liz truss whereas it's widely agreed that the late Elizabeth II, national treasure, was generally liked and respected by most of the population. It's, yeah. it's a really interesting way of flipping things around. Well, thank you very much. I mean, you know, as you know, but probably doesn't come across on the podcast, I'm a political junkie. I follow politics really, really closely. And I will never forget that day when Liz Truss went to meet the Queen when she'd just become Prime Minister and the Queen looked like she was almost a walking corpse. You could see those bruises. She did pass away not long after that meeting, didn't she? Leading some to speculate that former Prime Minister Liz Truss had had something to do with her death. (laughs) Well, exactly. And then Liz Truss had a disastrous few weeks as Prime Minister where it seemed like she was going mad. She stopped Mm, turning up to mm. Parliament. She seemed like she couldn't cope with it at all. And I just thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if the reason that she's had this total breakdown is... The Queen is haunting her. And then within that, you've got that fun thing about a ghost story where you can never be sure whether the ghost is real or whether it's all in the imagination of the narrator. it's just everything spiralling out of control. Very scary haunting in the middle of the story, though. Well... (laughs) I mean, the night visitation is one we obviously both decided to go for this week. (laughs) It's it's a common feature of ghost stories, but also something that was connective tissue between our two stories this week. So Mm. you also... Without planning it at all. No. Because we didn't know what the other was going to write about. You went for a story about a little boy in bed being harassed and harangued and haunted by a creepy coal dust monster. Well, maybe. I really wanted not to see the monster or the ghost at all. Sure. um, Because I thought that might be quite fun if we don't see it. We've been having lots of conversations this week about how much we enjoy listening to ghostly goings on on podcasts because then we can vividly imagine it in the way that's most scary for us. Yes. Whereas sometimes if you see horror or ghostly things on telly, it doesn't scare you as much because it's somebody else's scary fantasy in a way. Uh, So I quite like the idea of us not, not quite knowing what this thing was or looked like but just being this threat in the dark well that's it i think when you see somebody's version of a ghost or a monster or something on tv or or in a film 
is often quite an anticlimax when you finally see it. Mm. The mm. imagination and anticipation of what you're going to see is part of the thrill of watching a horror yeah. movie. Yeah, and we, we always tell ourselves it's going to be way worse than it is. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> now, um, full disclosure, I did take a lot of the ideas from this story from my dad. Yeah. So it's based on... Some reality um, there. I mean, I, my dad wasn't haunted by a horrible coal ghost. No. Um, but uh, thank you, Dad, for the inspiration uh, about your family's house when you were younger. Yeah, it was basically a conversation we were having um, with Michael, um, Eleanor's yeah, father. That would make an amazing story. <laughs> yeah, and she just latched onto it, really. Mm. And I love the idea of the evidence of the ghost being left in coal dust you know and mess because mess in a bedroom is something you never want to have is it so no exactly and you can sort of see where it's been but not where it's gone yeah i think that's another truly terrifying thing i also loved the idea of the creepy picture of the the magic flute illustration and the boy and the sound and the fear because that all played into this notion of an active imagination for your narrator yes he's sort of seeing scary things where there aren't scary things and there are just things he doesn't know why he doesn't like these things but he doesn't like them yeah. like he doesn't like the bathroom mirror mm. doesn't like the corridor yeah. doesn't like the little coal hole the book of the magic flute you know which is quite inoffensive really but what an ending an absolute pull the rug out from underneath you one that's <laughs> oh, awesome thank you well i'm glad you enjoyed i really did and i really enjoyed yours thank oh, you for telling it it's an absolute pleasure <laughs> so martin our kind requests for reviews last week yes. did not go unheard in fact, we received not one, not two, but three. Oh, we're so happy about this. You can probably hear it in our voices. Thank you so, so much to everyone who's written us a review. And if you haven't, please, please do. <laughs> so our first new review came from Piewacket42, great name, on iTunes, who writes, A wonderful wonder through folklore. Lots of good, well-researched historical information woven through story, myth and folklore. Martin and Eleanor clearly love their folklore. Their delight is evident. And who doesn't love being asked to join a storyteller around a campfire? A wonderful podcast for all things UK folklore. Thank you so much, Piewacket42. And we both sincerely hope that the Witchfinder General is leaving <laughs> you well alone to frolic with Ilmauza, Newest, Sack and Sugar, you know. <laughs> Vinegar Tom, Grizzle yeah, Greedy Guts. <laughs> indeed. So our second lovely review this week comes from Cat Girl CT on Apple Podcasts, who writes, Are you sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hear ye, hear ye. The Three Ravens is a hearty stew of lovingly researched evocative folklore from all over England. As comforting and nourishing as hot buttered toast to be savoured with a steaming pot of tea in front of a roaring fire. Pull up a chair and your favourite snuggly blanket and prepare to be entranced by Eleanor and Martin's stories of folklore through the ages. Witches, mermaids, fairies and more from every county. A true delight. The generous extras available to Patreon subscribers are thoroughly worth supporting for a mere pittance of $3 a month. All hail Eleanor, King of Storytellers. All hail Martin, King of Storytellers. Then there was a clap emoji at the oh, end. Oh, wow, that's so nice, Cat Girl CD. And we both hope that you're snuggled up in front of a roaring fire with a cup of tea right now. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Our third review comes from Giant Ginger Fan on iTunes, who writes... So many well-written and told haunting stories this month from the talented Eleanor and Martin from Three Ravens. 
definitely worth sitting down with a hot cuppa, blanket and toast to listen to on a wet October day. Now, I'm loving how blankets, hot beverages and toast are becoming a feature of these reviews. It's brilliant. Yeah. I think we might need a new logo with toast on it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> and please, we say it every episode. If you can, do hop on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and write us a review. We will read it out and everyone really does help other people to find us. Likewise, if you listen to us on Spotify or a different podcatcher, then please drop us some stars there or give us a thumbs up or whatever doohickey that Apple website uses. (laughs) We really, really appreciate it and are very thankful. In terms of our likers, commenters and super sharers this week, we need to say a special thank you to Michelle and Helen. Welcome back to you both. As well as Kelly, Katerina and Tony on Facebook. Elm Treese, Claire, Mind the Gap, Sage of the Gates and Cassandra Ash on Instagram. And Lawrence, Dr. Jane Maidley-Piddock, Lisa Sloan, Terry Gomez and Gracie on Twitter. If we didn't mention you, please don't think it's because we don't notice. We absolutely do. But as always, we're trying to share the love. And of course, if you want to join in the cacophony of Gronking with the rest (laughs) of the Three Ravens community, then please flap over to facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast, Instagram at Three Ravens podcast or Twitter at Three Ravens pod. And please keep sharing posts you like and tagging us in your posts. We only grow because you help us grow. So every little helps. It's like really, a seed really metaphor. Does. Yeah. I'll work on something. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. Do it. Um, do please send thoughts, feedback and pumpkin photos to 3ravenspodcast at gmail.com. And of course, if you would like to support the podcast and gain access to tons of exclusive content, then please do sign up to our Patreon for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash Three Ravens podcast. Isn't it bananas? We only have one more haunting season ghost story double bill to go. Yeah, it's gone fast. So fast. Mm-hmm. But in addition to the last Monday episode, we'll also have a Super Sarwain Halloween special coming out on the 31st, plus a new episode of Something Wicked about the Candyman Killer this Thursday. So the fun still has plenty of time to roll. Very true. And in the meantime, while our shades and sallow horrors have slunk off that way, We'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle until you're out of the woods. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour. And our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, produced by me, Martin Fox. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such lean With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. 